Hi, this is Yossi Hassan from Metaversal. And Vanessa Grillet from CoinFund. We're blazing forward to the edge of the metaverse. And making the key investment to make it all possible. You're listening to The Edge of NFT. The coolest podcast in this universe and well beyond. Stay tuned. Hey, all you NFT curious listeners. Check out today's episode to learn how Board Ape Yacht Club could become a powerhouse brand like Nike. And learn about the role that Golden Axe video game and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World played in laying the groundwork for our guests' future endeavors. And also why playing a game for 600 hours to win a single NFT might not be as crazy as you'd think. All this and more on today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts in the business side and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features guests Yossi Hassan and Vanessa Grillet. Yossi is the co-founder and CEO of Metaversal, a metaverse-focused startup that invests in and produces iconic NFTs that enable the metaverse. Prior to Metaversal, Yossi was the managing director of Techstars, first blockchain accelerator in New York City, and launched Techstars' first fintech-focused accelerator in Africa. He is a passionate, venture-backed, and award-winning entrepreneur-turned-investor. Yossi is also the non-executive director of We Think Code, Africa's largest nonprofit coding school that Yossi co-founded and aims to unlock Africa's digital talent. Here's a bit about Vanessa. She is head of portfolio growth at CoinFund. She has 20 years of expertise in the financial services and tech industry. At CoinFund, Vanessa plays a leading role in helping the firm and its portfolio companies bridge the gap between the worlds of traditional companies and decentralized networks from early stage development to growth at scale. Vanessa focuses on helping founders build world-class teams, protocols, applications, and network governance, forming alliances within the CoinFund portfolio of companies, as well as across other blockchain projects and protocols. Prior to joining CoinFund, she was an executive director at Consensus, where she focused on driving adoption for Ethereum, strategic initiatives, alliances, and channels. She was involved in setting up the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, sits on the board of the Accounting Blockchain Coalition, and is president of the Blockchain for Social Impact Coalition. Yossi, Vanessa, welcome. That's a lot you guys are up to. Good to have you here. Good to be on the show. Super fortunate to have you here. Really excited for this show. Really interested in you know the full spectrum of what's happening in the space right now. And for folks who are not familiar with your companies, could you give them a quick intro to 
kind of how you arrived at your current position in the space and you know, a little background just overall on your perspective. So let's start with you, Yossi, and, uh, and we'll dive in. Sure. So a little background to myself, being a tech entrepreneur and founder for as long as I can remember, but my story probably started out in the world of games when I was a little kid. That's how I learned about computers, learned about technology, learned about the internet, and what drove me to want to be a tech founder starting one of the first open source cloud companies back in 2004, when open source was the swear word and Microsoft was calling Linux a cancer. And we saw it as the future of how technology would be developed. So we started a company building that. And what was interesting out of that story, I was there for 11 years, but that's where I learned about Bitcoin. Our engineers, who are much smarter than me, decided to install it on our infrastructure and start mining back in 2011 when you could still mine with CPUs. And this was a revelation of a new technology that sits on top of open source software that was created this currency for the world, immediately fell in love with that. So I went down that rabbit hole for a number of years, sold my business, joined Techstars, as you mentioned in the beginning, to work with early stage founders, moved to the US, met the CoinFund team. And four years later, we decided to partner up but investing in NFTs, which we'll tell you more about, to start this company called Metaversal, which is a company that invests and produces NFTs. So that's a very short summary of how I got you today. So Vanessa, flip side from an investment fund, like how did you arrive there? And tell us a little more about what you do um, and how CoinFund operates. Yeah, so I was uh, in traditional finance for about 15 years and came across Bitcoin pretty early paid attention, but not too much or not enough to at least make it my full-time job. So I was investing a little bit. And then I was fundraising for a project and came across uh, Consensus and met with Joe Lubin. And when I understood the Ethereum project and the implications of it, I immediately jumped ship and worked at Consensus for five years. Pretty that was in 2016. During my time at Consensus, I was pretty early in NFTs. And that's how Jake and I, Jake is the co-founder, is the founder of CoinFund. Jake and I bonded at the time where no one cared about NFTs. And so moving from that, we just had a discussion and decided to work together at CoinFund. So I joined about seven months ago. And I'm the head of portfolio growth. I help all our companies scale and grow. CoinFund is a multi-strategy asset manager. We invest in early stage companies. We have a hedge fund. We create entities like Metaversal. And we'll explain how Yossi and I work together on that. That focuses on specific sectors. And so we want to offer a wide array of, of strategies to our investors and been growing the firm since then. We get the question all the time, what NFT projects should I invest in? What NFTs should we buy? So if we get it all the time, I can only imagine how often you all get that question, <laughs> but we're gonna ask you anyways. So let's start with the broader picture in such a dynamic space, which feels like it's changing by the day, or if not the day, the second, what really moves the needle for you when you're looking at, let's just start with the broader projects and then we can hone in on specific NFTs. 
we look at the NFT market or the broader NFT market, we refer to, and I think you, you mentioned in the beginning of your show, but we refer to iconic NFT assets. So what are the NFTs that are going to stand the test of time, that have cultural relevance, that have a community that is showing signs that this isn't a flash in the pan, this is something where it's going to be around in three, five, 10 years time. The same way you would think about a venture investment into a startup, you're looking at the longevity of the team, the people behind it, and the product that they're producing. And where does that stand in the market? Is it something that is unique? Is it differentiated? Is it pushing the boundaries? Is it something that really has the ingredients that if successful will last 10 years? And that's kind of the overarching lens that we look at any NFT that we're going to acquire. And we have our own metrics and we have what we call the NFT value stack and it's got different components to it and metrics that we can go into, like what makes up that stack in order for us to determine that. But in essence, we're investing in cultural moments that we believe over time are going to become more and more relevant and more and more valuable to a segment of a population. So to answer your question on which NFT should you be buying, one, is it something that resonates with you as a culturally significant asset that you want to acquire and hold, or that you think someone else is going to feel is extremely valuable that they want to now be part of this, either because of the status that it brings, the membership that it potentially gives you access to, the community that it gives you access to, or the financial economy that's being built around it in some kind of play-to-earn game mechanic or something that you can leverage on DeFi. What do you think is coming next in the next three, five, or 10 years down the road? And universally, everyone's like, I don't even know what's coming next like a year from now, much less three, five, or 10 years. So to take that kind of a long-term perspective though, and to invest in projects and support projects that really are thinking that far ahead in a space that evolves so darn quickly, month by month, quarter by quarter, certainly by the year, it's pretty powerful. I don't know that a lot of folks even have the core competency to take that kind of perspective or really go that deep in the space, in the weeds of what companies are working on. That's pretty cool. It's very impressive. Where does generative art projects like these 10,000 collections or 8888s or 777s fit into that? My sense is some of them could actually fit the criteria and other ones clearly don't. How do you differentiate between projects that have that type of staying power and ones that don't? when really you have very little data to run with sometimes. These projects come out and two or three weeks later, it's like, do I mint or do I not mint? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've seen something like Board Ape Yacht Club only been around for something like nine, 10 months and securing partnerships with global brand powerhouses and now valued anywhere between two to $3 billion. Today, Nike announced that they're acquiring Artifact that started in 2020. So you've got very early young projects that are entering the scene, gaining notoriety very quickly. And how do you differentiate your question between a flash in the pan and something that has longevity? And there's a couple of areas to look at that you can give you some kind of indication of that. It's very early, so it's hard to say for sure. But the things that give you that type of indication is primarily around the community that is being built around these assets, particularly within the PFP and generative space, because we're not talking about a cultural iconic moment from 20 years ago or a winning NBA shot for a specific game or anything like that. We're talking about the 
avatars of the metaverse and which ones are going to be the culturally relevant ones that when you're walking around in these metaverse worlds, people are going to be like, oh, wow, that person has got some kind of OG street cred because they're flexing this avatar. That's the equivalent that you're doing. And the way that that happens is by the other people who are collecting it and involved in that community, how strong those people are, how vocal they are. And it goes to the crux of some of what we're seeing today, which is new ways and new IP laws or new ways of sharing IP that encourages that kind of activity. We're seeing in the Board Ape Yacht Club world, as an example, they gave full commercial rights to anyone who's a holder of a Board Ape. And what that did is propelled that project, I think, in a way much quicker than any other project before it, because now people were incentivized as owners to be part of this community and to pour more additional effort into its success. Now I'm an owner of this ape. I am able to build a comic book out of it. I'm able to do a commercial deal. I'm able to go to Universal Music and start a band with four of my apes. This is something that was unimaginable before, whereas other projects or other brands hold their IP very closely and they have to decide. So that's what we're seeing is propelling these types of communities and giving these types of incentives for everyone to double down on it. So we look for those types of projects where it has those kind of mechanics built into it that allows that type of incentive structure. And it's very Web3. It's very crypto native. It's all about incentive coordination. And this mechanic, the NFTs enable that type of mechanic in new ways that were previously uh, not possible. So what are your thoughts here on the NFT specific projects and then the broader perspective? CoinFund doesn't invest directly in NFTs. We invest in founders who are building NFT solutions. And we've been doing so for a while and we're pretty excited about giving other founders the opportunities to build on these solutions. So we invested very early in Rarible and Dapper, so building NFT protocols and marketplaces. We've invested in Upshot, which looks at the financialization of NFTs. We've recently announced our investment in Holoplex, which is building individual stores for indie creators on Solana. And we also invested in another company that focuses on the financialization of NFTs. So, you know, solutions that cut across protocols, that cut across um, use cases are very appealing to us. We really believe in the future of NFTs. Right now, you know, we think the mental frame sometimes is NFTs are collectibles and art, but NFTs are so much more than that. And so basically we're investing in all the infrastructure that will allow people to interact, transact with NFTs in the future, whether they be collectibles, whether they be financial instruments, whether they be real world assets. Everything can be represented by an NFT and can be transacted as an NFT in the metaverse or elsewhere. And so creating that infrastructure is something that's very exciting to us. One of the interesting things that you mentioned, Yossi, was just the Board Ape Yacht Club and all the things that it's doing with regard to IP and how that's opening up all these different channels. You had had mentioned uh, separately that you think could really become a powerhouse brand, like a Nike of the world or something like that. And I'm curious, you know, from both of your perspectives, actually, and let's start with Yossi, because I think this was the genesis of this is, is a statement that you made. 
How does a project like that, an NFT project, become a powerhouse like that? And Vanessa, does that on your side change how you view maybe investing in an NFT project versus a potentially world-changing needle-moving brand? What we're seeing with something like Board Ape Yacht Club and these powerhouse projects that are emerging is really the premium that you get or the status that you get when you become an owner versus a consumer. When you're buying a pair of Nikes, you're buying into the vision of Nike and what they're selling to you in terms of the brand that you're buying into, but effectively you're a consumer. You're on the one side of that transaction. What you're seeing with Bored Apes and other projects in the space now, when you become an owner, is that your mental model of that community completely shifts. You're no longer just on the one side of the transaction. You're on both sides of the transaction. You are both in it for the long haul and the potential financial gain that this can create. You are also a shareholder, a voting member of what happens in this community and a vocal advocate of how it should be shaped. So if you're starting with a community of 10,000 apes, as an example, and it starts with two, 3,000 people who have got a vested interest in the say of how this grows, all of a sudden you have two to 3,000 raving fans on a very early brand, as opposed to just raving consumers of a brand. And you put that into play, all those people, what are they doing every single day to enhance the value of this? You get these network effects in a small upstart brand. And that gives you the ability to reach far beyond what another upstart would be doing, that you can bring in all these culturally relevant moments into your brand. You can get celebrities to now change their profile picture to an ape. You can get musicians to be putting it up at their concerts. You can become a culturally relevant icon without having to spend, like Nike does, billions of dollars to buy that status. It's coming with the status because everyone is coming on board with it. And that's the phenomenon that we're seeing with something like a board Ape Yacht Club. And I think over time, if continues on this trajectory, will be more valuable than a brand like Nike without having to spend a fraction of the ad spend that Nike has had to do to get those kind of endorsements. You're seeing celebrities coming to Board Ape Yacht Club as opposed to Board Ape Yacht Club going to celebrities to sign them with celebrity deals. It's completely inverse the model. And sometimes the Board Ape Yacht Club doesn't let the celebrity in like poor Kylie Jenner. <laughs> yeah, right. Interesting because it evolves and it morphs over time as that community evolves and different owners come in and out. I think we'll talk about one in the, in the hot topics here that somebody slipped through. But Vanessa, how does that impact your perspective on, say, investing in NFTs versus a community of NFT holders versus a brand like Board Ape Yacht Club that's becoming this powerhouse? Yeah. So we invest in technology and technology innovation. So for us, you know, we see that with that lens, right? So if a NFT project turns into a DAO and then turns into a brand and innovates from a technology perspective, I think that would be very interesting for us. If it's, you know, morphing into a consumer brand, I don't think that's really in our mandate at this stage, but we are looking, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, right? So NFTs are the new social media. NFTs are brands. NFTs are loyalty points. LFTs are DAOs, can be managed as a DAO or can be a community that's organized through a DAO. So we are looking a lot at DAOs and the power of the community that they create and what can come out of it, right? So Yossi can speak to the Constitution DAO investment that they made 
and see how it is interesting and experimental at this stage to see what the outcome is. But in our mandate as a fund, you know, we're really focusing on, on the technology built and less so sort of the commercial outcome that could be part of it. Like, for example, we're not investing in specific games because we don't know what the commercial outcome of that specific game will be. We'll invest in gaming infrastructure and NFT infrastructures that allows for using NFTs in gaming, for example. We talked a little bit about like co-ownership and versions of ownership. And there's sort of like uh, this very nebulous thing that's going on right now around IP, right? And like who owns trademark, who owns the IP of a particular thing, or, or is it divided up in some sort of interesting way? I'm curious, you know, maybe we can kick it back to you, Yasi, on your thoughts about kind of how IP plays a, a role in all of this and how much do those sort of community members need to own? versus just feeling a part of it? And, and how does that actually play out? I don't think we've seen all the repercussions that are going to play out here in terms of how maybe there's some landmark legal cases coming up here around how does this IP ownership actually get implemented? In owning the metaverse or being a successful NFT brand in it, the more open, the more you lean towards an open ecosystem, the higher your chances of success in this ecosystem. A very typical web one or web two approach is very closed, very centralized, very, I'm the gatekeeper, I make all the decisions and you have to come to me for permission. What we're seeing here in the web three world, in the crypto world is that everything is opened up. And the more you open it up, the faster the network effects, the more people become raving consumers and fans and co-owners and believers and start contributing to these projects. It's very much an open approach and an open source approach. So where we look is where are those IP licenses being applied? So one of the first investments we made, in fact, the first investment we made in an NFT was a project called Nouns. If you know uh, Nouns DAO, we acquired Noun number nine. One of the reasons for that was it's the first project that really put its weight behind a Creative Commons license, CC0. And what CC0 means is really that no one owns the rights to this license. Anyone can do anything, which is a radical idea for a new brand. Anyone can do anything with this. You don't need permission to copy it. You can create generative works. You can make derivative works. You can take our logo. You can put it on a t-shirt. You can sell it as merchandise. And we have no claim to any of that. And that's how it was released. And that, in this idea that the more open you make it, the faster it will spread, is exactly in line with that philosophy. So that's why we participated in Noun 9. And we'll see that you know, one of the prominent creators there, Punk4156, was a big crypto punk holder, went at Lava Labs and said that you guys are doing it wrong, that you're holding all this IP, you were iconic, you were the first or one of the first, but you're not doing anything with that. And you give us the community the ability to take this and run with it. And unfortunately, haven't heard a response yet from Lava Labs, but then what he did was he sold 35 of his punks on the market, underpriced them, brought the price of punks down, and eventually sold his ape punk for about $10 million about two days ago. So still great demand in the punk community. But what we've seen is the price of crypto punks go down from about 150 ETH in its all-time high down to about 66 ETH today, while things like Board Ape Yacht Club continuing to climb. Nouns, uh, the Nouns Treasury sitting on 75 odd million dollars and continuous days or, uh, sales of record-breaking numbers. So the market is responding in a way saying that we also believe that open ownership is a better model 
in this Web3 world. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting uh, <laughs> with this conversation came up the other day when we were in Miami with someone who owns some IP around the meta brand, right? <laughs> Who's just making this comment around how basically what Facebook has done with meta is they didn't really even bother getting that mark from anybody. They just said, hey, we're going to start using it and we're going to own it. You know, and if you want to, you know, basically the strategy of if you want to sue us, you can. Da, 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 da. And, you know, he was kind of just almost giggling around it. It's like, this is all against the spirit of the metaverse and Web3 and all this stuff. And so it's kind of funny to take that approach to call your company meta and go the opposite direction of, you know, sort of sharing and, and integrating. That's it's very aligned with Facebook and their DNA. So I wouldn't have expected anything otherwise. <laughs> right. But appreciate you echoing that the direction, right? The direction of Web3, you know. Let me ask from Vanessa's perspective here, because we're talking about investing in technology, right? We're talking about the underlying tech that drives thing. And that's fundamentally intellectual property that drives value in a lot of ways for a lot of companies in these investments. So from a fund perspective, we see the value, I guess, in the community side of openness as a model. But how does that drive value from a fund perspective? We're investing in open source technology. And open source technology, although it has some licenses, et cetera, and we've seen it with Uniswap, you know, changing the license so that people legally would be liable if they, they hack the protocol. Most of the protocols don't have those restrictions. And it's unlikely that we're going to go that route because the pace of innovation in blockchain is something unseen before. And there's no need to protect something that everyone can fork or use and build products on. We're very comfortable with that. With all my interaction with all the, the founders, this is not really a discussion unless they have some closed sourced projects, but we, we usually are not involved in them. And that was the same thing when I was at Consensus. There was no protection over IP because it's such an open community and the value is in the community and is in is in the adoption. Like he says, same thing for whether it's NFTs or protocols or project, it's the same approach. Crypto VCs are very comfortable investing in open networks and protocols because that's how they're built and that's how they're designed. So it's, it's nothing new for someone like a coin fund. It takes a lot more for the traditional folks to get their head around what are the gates? What are the kind of boundaries here that makes this defensible over time? And trying to figure that out in a traditional lens is, is almost impossible. It's a completely new way to think about how this technology is built, how people participate in it, and where the value. We've had a chance to travel quite a bit over the last month and a half. I got back to LA, I think, after 40 days on the road on Friday. And the conversations around Web3 were so plentiful and there's a lot of interesting panels that we moderated or just conversations we had around DeFi and, and virtual land and gaming and NFTs and all of this converging. I wanted to just clarify, do you agree that all of this is now coming together? And to Jeff's point earlier, when you look at what's possible in 2022, it's a little bit unpredictable just because all this technology 
if, if it was individuals in a room and you just said, go create for a year, you don't really know what's going to come out on the other side. Is that your perspective as well, that we're seeing this massive convergence in all these different areas? I think we're, we're seeing several convergence. I think we're seeing convergence of Web 2 and Web 3. That's the first step. And so there is a clash of culture there. I think the NFT allowed us to bridge that gap very easily, but like now for the large consumers to understand the power of the technology they're using and how much ownership they have and having projects give them the opportunity to use this ownership across platforms, across marketplaces, across games, et cetera, is yet to come. And it's not the reality today. What we see is that convergence coming where the accessibility of NFTs will increase. There will be more and more interoperability, whether it's on the protocol layer or at the application layer. And that will continue over the next three to five years. And that will allow seamless experience from a consumer and an owner perspective of the NFTs or or people in the metaverse, and that's going to transpire in our everyday life. So currently, you know, we're looking at art, collectible, financialization of NFTs, but, you know, we're going to see workplaces in the metaverse. We're going to see credit credentials in the metaverse. We're going to see loyalty points in the metaverse. We're going to see e-commerce in the metaverse. We invested in a company called Space, which is really going to be at the confluence of Web 2 and Web 3 with that e-commerce component that um, can go viral in several different ways as the information spreads and people have access. You know, there are 7 billion people or more on the planet. Maybe 99% cannot, do not travel and have like a very, can have access to some online experience. And so it's sort of like sky's the limit here of what's going to be, what's going to be happening in the next five years. What do you say to the folks that are critical of the potential of metaverse proliferation, where they're like, how many different metaverses can you have? How can all of this be done in the metaverse? Doesn't there have to be one or several winners here? I find it very exciting. And I hope that we're not going to be replicating um, the Web2 sort of mega tech companies because the diversity of the metaverses is going to reflect the diversity of the world, basically, and the capacity for us to engage in very different ways, even with different personas and have access, unlimited access. And so we'll see the metaverses coming together in the future, building bridges between themselves having increased access, but we'll see that in the future. But we have to embrace diversity because it makes us richer. It makes innovation flourish. And so having like one or two metaverses is really not the world I want to see in the future. We look at what's going to drive this multiverse of metaverses. Why we talk about NFTs unlocking the metaverse is because for the first time you have this ability to have digital ownership true digital ownership, scarce digital ownership, and the ability for that to be traded globally, instantly, as long as it meets the standards of an NFT. And that standard is, again, open and prolific. Now, why is that important? Because now that you have asset ownership, people want to be able to 
support the asset. They want to be able to move their asset from one place to another. I have my awesome avatar that I spent 100 hours playing in a certain game developing, and all I can do is only keep it within that game then it's much less valuable to me than if I could take it to the next game that I'm playing and the next experience that I'm going into or into that office meeting that I'm going to dial into uh, with my VR headset over time. And that's just going to force companies, protocols, projects around the world to embrace the standard because ownership unlocks all of that. And like we see kind of the ability for ownership of property in the U.S., versus other economies and the ability to bring that about sooner made America develop a lot quicker than other economies around the world. And the same will play out in this metaverse play. And NFTs really are the centerpiece of that and why we at Metaverse are so focused on investing in the NFTs as opposed to the picks and shovel businesses as much as we do on the NFT side, because we really see that as the integral layer that unlocks the metaverse. We look forward to that day when you log into your business meeting and you're the bored ape and the other person's the <laughs> crypto punk. <laughs> it's happening. It's That's... happening already. <laughs> we saw Adidas sponsor G Money and G Money is his ape avatar. That's what it means to be sponsoring yeah. G Money. And a big brand put their weight behind that. I mean, we've got Neil Strauss writing for Jenkins the Valet, but it's yeah. his crowdsource, right? These things are happening all the time. People are, yeah, even in IRL are walking around as their own avatars with dyed hair and different outfits and all kinds of fun stuff, right? To reflect their apes. Shout out to Cowboy Cheetah, who was representing with Cowboy or Cheetah Spots and his hair and everything uh, in Miami. And we're seeing, you know, with augmented reality, that will become more and more commonplace. And digital merch, digital fashion is becoming a category and an industry that is growing. And, you know, someone will be wearing a pair of Nikes and you put your AR glasses on and all of a sudden that puts you into a completely different outfit. And that's what's starting to happen. As we digitize more and more, there's just going to be more of that happening with every day. So it's Ethan, it's not far away where I think apes walking into the boardroom is going to be a common occurrence. Bored apes walking into the boardroom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the real question here is, is, as you look outside of your own companies and your own portfolios, you know, what other are projects or companies are you excited about? And who are you looking to for inspiration and you know, education? The early creators, the early artists who are coming into the space in droves that are undiscovered, that are unknown, that are pushing the boundaries of what this technology can do and really experimenting. And I think that's where the most interesting stuff is happening. We spoke at the beginning of the show about a new platform, FX Hash, where you know, generative artists are experimenting on a different blockchain on Tezos, much lower cost blockchain, and creating some really unique and interesting generative art. And that's where I think something like NFTs really is powerful. It, it opens up the playing field for anyone to participate. Everyone is welcome. And we see innovation in the strangest corners because of that. So where do we look for inspiration? In those corners. And from there we learn, and then we bring that into our studio and start looking at how can we take that inspiration and use that as part of our productions. Makes sense. Vanessa, how about for you? I think for us, it's really being very close to the community, whether it's the DAO community, whether it's the creators community, the developers, 
you know, they're really the ones who are creating this industry. We pride ourselves as, you know, crypto native VCs. We really are founder first and they're the ones who give us the ideas. We're not, you know, we try to help them once they're on their journey and we know what's going on in the, in the market and we give them perspective. But those are really the inspirational folks for us. Hi. We love having listeners like you because you're not only generous, but you're smart and you want to maximize the impact of your generosity. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act, but how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, programs that they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could visit GiveWell.org. There, you'll get a short vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence back to charities they've found. Here's an example of how we at Edge of NFT make our charitable contributions go super far. Quick search on GiveWell's website, found their maximum impact fund, clicked donate, sent crypto to their address, done. Their maximum impact fund distributes quarterly to the charities that they believe will do the most good. GiveWell accepts a broad variety of popular tokens and provides a simple way to document your donation. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick podcast and enter Edge of NFT at checkout. Make sure they know you heard about GiveWell from Edge of NFT to get your donation matched. But we want to take a step back for a minute from all of that and get your personal perspective on some questions. It's a section that we call Edge Quick Hitters. They're a fun, quick way to get to know you a little bit better. 10 questions overall, looking for short, single word or a few word answers, but we can always expand if we get the urge. Vanessa, let's start with you. What is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Purchasing, I think it would be a book, probably. Or something like to go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Early influential books for you? I think the one that threw me off the most was It's a Wonderful World from Aldous Huxley. And I might be getting the Brave the New title World. Are you talking about Brave, Brave New, New World? World. Yeah. And so it was in my grandfather's library. I would spend my summers in my grandfather's library where there are all these books lying and I would just read them randomly. And this one I read at a very young age, and I was like completely blown off by Alpha Beta. Like, what is going on? What is this world? And it kind of scared me, I have to say. I was like, I don't want to live in this world. So I think I've always had that in the back of my mind of what happens when we commoditize people and ideas, and you know, what can we do about this? And how can we make technology work for the good of humanity? It sounds like that's been your mission in life ever since. <laughs> well, I think it's worth noting that they say that that's one of the best things you could do for your kids is just have a big bookshelf full of books, right? It's, it's like actually a predictor of success or something. At least it was, I don't know, five or 10 years we went into that research. And also, Yossi just happens to have a snapshot of the Brooklyn Public Library in the background of his Zoom here. So. I was going to ask if virtual bookshelves work and do the same thing. <laughs> Maybe. All right. Well, Yossi, let's go to you, man. What's the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? I'm sure it's not the first thing I ever purchased, but for some reason it stands out in my memory was the first time I bought a computer game called Golden Axe. 
I must have been, I don't know, 11 or or 12 years old. And I remember the excitement of going to the mall to buy the game, go home, put it on, play it, just spend hundreds of hours dueling out in the Golden Axe world. All the kind of ingredients to everything that's happening right now, right? Exactly. Question number two, Vanessa, what's the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? Selling securities. (laughs) My first job was I was working at an investment bank and we were doing roadshows, selling, you know, companies to hedge funds and uh, having them invest in there. And so that's really the first transactional, real transactional experience I've had. I never, as a child or before, that was never my thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yossi, how about you? I remember selling uh, T-shirts on the beach in a place called Plettenberg Bay in South Africa. I'm originally from South Africa. And it's actually how I bought the Golden Axe game was selling these T-shirts. And Plettenberg Bay, the license plate is CX. And I didn't understand it at the time. I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And the T-shirt said, I have CX appeal. And I was walking around the, the beach selling these T-shirts and, you know, adults all thought it was very cute and hilarious and I had no idea well, but the T-shirt sold well. So I was very love excited. It. Yeah, that's cool, man. I love and hate this thing about kids, you know, like they have no idea why their sales work, right? Like, so they get into this delusion that they're like incredible salespeople, right? Some of them are, right? But some of them, they're just damn cute and maybe terrible salespeople, right? <laughs> they just end up selling a lot. <laughs> I still use the, the uh, try the cute quotient, but it's it's not, you know, with every year it's getting harder. Yeah, it gets harder. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh uh, man, funny stuff. me and I completely blanked and you can keep that, that I was like doing summer jobs and I was selling clothes. I worked mm-hmm. in the hut, all those things, but it wasn't like really me selling. It was more like a, enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That's cool. You were just waiting for the uh, opportunity to slang some securities, right? Question number three, Vanessa, what is the most recent thing you purchased? I purchased uh, yesterday. I bought some makeup. Yossi, how about you? Uh, It was a Clonex mint file. Okay. From Artifact. Uh, Artifact. Artifact. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's. I just got a tinge of FOMO right there. That, <laughs> that was one I couldn't slip into. Congratulations, my friend. Thank it's, you. I've got plenty of. I've got plenty of Clorox and Windex guys. I <laughs> need some. <laughs> Question number four: What is the most recent thing you sold, Vanessa? So during the pandemic, I basically sold a lot of stuff that was in my closet and in my house that I didn't need. You know, I just had a lot of time on my hands and all that stuff. Like, do you really need it? I don't know. So I just sold everything. But in terms of cryptocurrencies or NFTs, I'm a holder. Difficult to give examples there. It's a good answer. Yeah, I feel like like it's an extraordinarily high percentage of just straight holders on this podcast. Yasi, how about you? Not to go against the holding trend, but the, the last thing I sold was a board ape, and that was it. Is to, uh, it wasn't for three thousand dollars, though, right? It was thankfully not. For $3, thankfully not. And we'll talk about that here in a few, <laughs> in a few minutes. Question number five, Vanessa: What is your most prized possession? I think it's my health to be honest, and something that I 
cherish and look after because we only have one life and, you know, we can buy all these board apes all day long, but we're not there to, you know, be healthy and share with our friends and family. We don't have a lot. So Yossi, how about you? I'm a new father. So my most prized position is my nine week daughter. Uh, her name is Maya. She keeps me up at night, but puts a smile on my face all the time. Oh man. Congratulations. That's amazing. Question number six, Vanessa, if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service and experience that's currently for sale, what would that be? For me, it would definitely be an experience. I would do a year around the world tour or something, something like that. Yassi, how about you? I'm the same. I think uh, the opportunity to travel with my family for a year or two around the world and immerse ourselves in other cultures would be what I'd spend my money on. So yeah, having that stripped away from us for a while really, I think, made a lot of us appreciate the freedom to do that, you know? it's uh, 100%. It's a big loss over the last couple of years. Question number seven. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would that be? So I would say uh, intellectual curiosity, for sure. It's something that I've had since I was young. I've always... Not thinking out of the box, but just being curious and wanting to know more about things you don't know. And I think that's what brought me into tech and and the exciting space we're in and just wanting to learn more always. Yassi, how about you? For me, it would probably be a keep cool, calm and collected under pressure. It doesn't take quite a lot to ruffle me. So yeah, that would be the personality trait that I would pass on. Well, let's flip that one on its head for a sec. Vanessa, if you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? I think impatience. I'm always impatient. And sometimes I can be less generous with other people who are more patient than me. Uh, Yossi, how about you? I don't experience Vanessa as impatience. I'm just saying, (laughs) I find her having a lot of time for us and all of the things that we need. So take that for what it's worth. On my side, probably the thing I would, give up is the same quality. People say that my kind of cool, calm demeanor sometimes comes across as not being excited or passionate about something. Uh, So keeping this even keel sometimes robs the highs of sharing in people's joy. So Mm. that would be it. Double-edged sword. A little easier question. Okay. Question number nine. Vanessa, what did you do just before joining us on the podcast? I've been on call since 8 a.m. nonstop with founders, <laughs> with projects, with my colleagues. So it's been a great day. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Yes, that sounds about right to me. Yossi, how about you? I'm on my first day of paternity leave and I rushed to try and get my daughter to sleep and not make any noise so we could record this podcast. Awesome. I think we're doing, are we doing a good job? I think Shh. we are. I don't hear anything. Good work. Last one, guys. Question number 10, Vanessa. What are you going to do next after the podcast? I'm going to a women's in crypto drink. So I'm pretty excited. I went to women in crypto breakfast last week. And some of us at the breakfast are like, hey, let's grab drinks because other people were in town, especially with all the holiday parties and stuff. So I'm going to go there and probably meet new faces and and see what people are up to. Awesome. That sounds great. Yassi, how about you? I'm going to pack for a upcoming trip to South Africa 
to visit friends and family for the next two weeks. There we go. There's that travel. Amazing. Well, that's quick hitters. I appreciate y'all playing along with us here for those fun questions. What do you say we jump into some hot topics? All right, let's hit it up. So the big headline is Yossi accidentally sold his sport ape for $3,000 instead of $300,000. <laughs> now, this actually happened to someone else. The owner of the board ape number 3547 made a fat finger typing error while listing the item for sale online. It was instantly snapped up by an automated account and put back on sale for nearly $250,000. The seller, Max Knott, told CNET he had meant to list board ape number 3547 for sale at 75 Ethereum, a cryptocurrency used for many of T trades. But during one of the many trades he lists online every day had caused him to instead type in 0.75 ETH. Oops. So there is, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to look at this story. And the Twitter comments on this are quite entertaining, I would say. One should realize that on the other side, he did own at least another board ape and some other really, really valuable NFTs. It doesn't take away from the gut punch that probably like he wakes up to every morning and will for quite a long time. But at least he wasn't completely in the cold. This wasn't his one and only board ape. I don't know how much this is specific to blockchain or not, but transactions are very, you can't reverse them. And so we see sometimes, I don't know how common this is when you see, oh, well, Bitcoin hit some really low trading amount, right? And an overnight trading or something, you know, there's a lot of scenarios in blockchain because you can't reverse these things. You can't go back and undo a lot of stuff where this just happens, right? It's a question, you know, then of how the news spreads, whether that's actually what people consider the value of a thing or if it was just a mistake or, you know, things like that. Also interesting too, you know, a board ape, this price point here of around two or $300,000. Of course, Josh, you made the point that some of these folks that own board apes are holding lots of other valuable NFTs and things like that. But at the same token, maybe I have a little bit of concern, you know, for the people who do have a bored ape, right? And they're starting to act you know, like they're living high on the hog. And maybe that's there's one of their only sole assets, right? And and two or three hundred K is a significant amount. But, you know, once you start spending and acting like you're rich without actually having that money in the bank, things can go south pretty quick. So Unfortunately, like these kind of things really scare people from entering the space, you know, and they hear stories like this. And what we really need is just continued you know, growth of folks that are not in crypto into crypto. Uh, NFTs is one of those great gateways that is bringing so many people in. I think we were blessed with the way that Top Shot really you know, hit the mainstream and the ease with which people can come in, drop their credit card and, and purchase stuff and not even knowing necessarily that they're doing something in crypto. So unfortunately, I think this does kind of scare people sometimes. And, and fundamentally, projects do have to do a better job of making these kind of mistakes more infrequent. They happen a lot, not this big, obviously, at $300,000, but this does happen a lot. Yeah, that's something for me. I just see that as a, of course, as an entrepreneur, I see that as a problem. That's a signal that there's something not right in that system that needs to be improved. Because as we said, as you highlighted, Ethan, once you pull the trigger, it's done, right? This is no going back. It's not, you can't call customer service and reverse something. You could technically discuss the responsibility of the platforms, right? Depending on where, where you sell and buy. So you could imagine a world where some consumer protection rules require you know, a five-minute 
or 10 minutes grace period where you can reverse the transaction. I don't know, something that is feasible from a technical perspective, but yeah. it's not available. OpenSea sometimes gives you mm-hmm. this light orange prompt that tells mm-hmm. you that you're selling it at below the floor. Is it better than nothing? Yeah. Is it easy to miss that or not understand what you're doing? Certainly, if you're not like an avid trader, it would be quite simple to overlook that or to misunderstand it. There have been a couple of situations where that's happened and the seller has made a plea to the community and the community have Mm -hmm. kind of rallied around it and the buyer has sometime reversed the transaction. So it could Mm -hmm. be interesting if the community rallies around this one and we'll Mm. see if the new buyer is just got, (laughs) you know, cold blood and uh, doesn't care and see if they're they're actually a person behind that keyboard who says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll reverse this transaction. Right. In a world of crypto where a huge amount of the value is making snap decisions, you know, that could mean a world of profit. I think it'd be pretty hard for that buyer to give (laughs) up on that. It is community oriented. You could even have like a certain, uh, but there could be a sort of a blackballing among the community of saying, hey, you're not part of the community. You acquired this surreptitiously, you know, so. It's like Ken Griffin buying the constitution, just saying. There you go. Well, let's cover the next one, Ethan. What do we got cooking? Let's do it. We're talking about gaming here. Ubisoft has an NFT that requires you to play 600 plus hours of Ghost Recon. The Wolf Enhanced Helmet is a new NFT item for Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Ubisoft just launched today as part of the company's ongoing experiment with the blockchain. Publisher isn't selling these digital items, but are instead giving them away for free to qualifying players In this case, to get this digit, Ubisoft's term for these NFT in-game items, you need to have played over 600 hours of mediocre open-world shooter Ghost Recon Breakpoint. (laughs) This is an article written about this. But this just just, just begs the question that we're all exploring right now in this whole world of blockchain crypto NFTs. What what are the value of things? I mean, that's not free. (laughs) If you you ask me, is that a free item? It's not free, right? You got to pay... Play the game. Yeah, I like the idea of in-game assets that can't just be purchased straight up, that have to be earned through the gaming economy. This just feels a little bit extreme. And for me, it points to the Brave New World concern of using technology in a way that can be detrimental. I mean, we've heard stories of what happens when people overplay games, they don't get enough sleep, they forget to drink water, they forget to eat, it creates antisocial behavior. I'm going to go thumbs down on this sort of particular NFT and how it's set up personally. What's interesting here is you do have a lot of, uh, I think it was, is the guy's name Elio Trades? Elio Trades? You know, we have a friend that's got really deep into uh, one of their NFT projects and it required I think it was a free or relatively inexpensive NFT that you got. You had to solve a bunch of riddles and go through this really fantastical pre-launch scenario in order to get it. My sense of the outcome of that particular project from hearing from people who were involved where they thought it was fun, right? So I think if you make the game that you have to play fun and engaging and interesting and mysterious and entertaining... Okay, fine. Give away a free NFT at the end of it. If it turns into the equivalent of 
what we have had now for many years now, which is like watch ads, you know, for a couple pennies on the minute, you know, for three hours and we'll give you some money, then gosh, yeah, that's a huge headache. Kids are going to be spending 600 hours playing the game. And this isn't a justification for Ubisoft, but I'd rather have the choice of being rewarded something for the time that I'm putting into a game if I'm playing it than not have the choice. So if I had to choose between the two worlds, would I want one where I am rewarded for my gameplay versus one that I'm not? Yes, I would go with rewarded. Is there a kind of moral responsibility for the game company to do that in a balanced way that doesn't create too many perverse incentives? Yes. What does that look like? How do you get that right when shareholders want to see more eyeballs playing your game 24-7? It's tricky about gamification that enables human agency and gamification that really causes people to do behaviors that are more extreme than what they were considering doing prior. And how do you strike that balance? One comment in the article wrote, Federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. 600 hours adds up to $4,350. It does become quite an expensive helmet, especially if you're going to play half as much as you end up playing to earn this helmet. What if that helmet then sells for $43,000? Is the person who wrote the article now a big fan because the person just saw $700 an hour? Vanessa, what are your thoughts? I'm not philosophically opposed to, to that you know, mechanism. I would want to make sure that people, when they, they choose to do that, there's a possibility that there's a market for these assets and a way to actually monetize them or have the people believe that there's actual value into what they're getting. So that's not clear to me because I don't know the game as much, that specific game, and I don't know what this helmet you know, allows you to do if that helmet is like an extraordinary asset that you can get and only a limited number of people get the asset. And over time, that allows you to win more or, or do more things. Why not? I mean, I think it's like anything. We're testing the limits and you have to, you have to get in there and iterate as lean startup folks. We really appreciate that. This is one test. And I'm sure even for the company, this is a test to understand what those dynamics are. And, and it's all learning. And I think we're going to really have an opportunity to take that information and do better and be better. And, you know, cool things will come from it. I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. That's a great talking about testing the limits. And I think you brought up Brave New World, of course, Vanessa, a lot earlier. And I think we're seeing these kinds of dynamics and a, a lot of very principles are coming at stake here. Right. And I'm thinking about dignity and that's all up to the person that's playing that game. If they're enjoying it, great. If they're doing it because, you know, just to get that and they've got sucked into a wormhole around that, it's not fun. It makes me think of like Starbucks points, right? Okay, like if you love drinking coffee and you can go back to Starbucks anyway, great. Use the Starbucks points, play the Starbucks game. But if it turns into something that's kind of a usury, you know, of the consumer and the individual, then that's not fun anymore. But that's all up to the individual. If you like coffee, Starbucks points are great. If you don't, they're not. What I think is maybe the big equalizer here, and I might be completely wrong, is that the market decides the value of these. And if gamers think this is Ubisoft just trying to manipulate them, then it's going to trade for cents on the dollar. If there's real clout and value for the item that's being created, it's going to trade for tens of thousands of dollars. And all of a sudden, the conversation becomes mute because of the price tag that it's trading for on the market. So I think the ability for the market to decide 
here, what is valuable is interesting and whether there's a response from a community saying, you know, you guys are just trying to like manipulate us and we're not even going to go for this and that gameplay plays out is interesting to see how that works. Well, appreciate the varying perspectives on it. I think time will tell across this and, uh, and so many of the other things that we talked about today. Uh, Yossi, Vanessa, we really appreciate your time with us today and digging in the, the weeds of all fun things, NFT and metaverse and all these hot topics and quick hitters. We want our, our listeners to have a chance to follow you in all the fun things that you're working on. Where can they go to do that? Yossi, let's start with you. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Yossi Hassan, or you can follow Metaversal at Hello Metaversal or go to our website, www.metaversal.gg and contact us from there. Amazing. Vanessa, how about you? I'm on Twitter, first and last name, Vanessa Grillet underscore and not underscore Vanessa Grillet, which is another person. Um, on our website, you have all the contact details. If anyone is looking for a job or wants to enter Web3, contact me directly. We have over 100 companies that are looking to hire talented people. And if you have a project that you want funding for, also contact us and we'll make sure we'll look at it. Word on the street is we're going to do a little giveaway, I think, for our listeners today. Uh, Yasi, you want to fill us in on what you got over there? Yeah, we have some uh, rare FX hash mints, some generative art that we'll be giving away I don't know, Jeff, how you decide on who wins, but I'll leave that in your hand. We'll let you know which generative art piece from FX Hash. It's a new platform on the Tezos chain that we spoke about and some really creative, interesting new artists emerging from there. And we think that if you've been following things like Squiggles or Chromies, that this is the new platform where the iconic generative pieces will be coming from. So we're going to give away some of the early ones. Awesome. That's amazing. We really appreciate it. Very grateful. Folks, listen to this podcast and then go check out our socials for all of the details on the giveaway. Okay. Well, I think we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us, say something awesome, then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. And remember, we always invite you to co-create and build with us at Edge of NFT. We're unlocking a whole new way to connect and collaborate with us through our own NFT drop, Spirit Seeds NFT, in collaboration with one of our favorite humans on the planet, Nicole Buffett, an amazing artist and philanthropist whose project Spirit Coins serves as the inspiration for the drop. There are only 100 Spirit Seeds that will ever be minted, and you can go grab one for 0.55 ETH at spiritseeds.xyz. We've shared this project within our community first as a thank you for your support. Each seed holder will receive one of 10 8-bit generative spirit seed designs from our very own Ethan Janney. Again, only 100 ever. You'll offset your carbon for one year. You'll receive one transferable VIP ticket to NFTLA February 22nd to the 24th, 2022. You'll get one living tree with all the co-creation, access, contests, and admission perks that you'll love. You'll also score a 10% chance of getting a spirit coin with a recent floor of two to four ETH and many drops, merge, and other surprises in the near future. Again, head over to spiritseeds.xyz to land one while they are available. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.